Roger Green, host of the Surfing Nash Tsunami Podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 54, Go Inside a Pivotal Event, the Patient-Focused Drug Development Meeting. In this conversation, the surfers and guests share some fairly divergent opinions about the relative importance of getting a drug to market and moving beyond the biopsy, and wrap up by discussing the one message they most hope regulators took from this powerful and moving event. The PFDD meeting was a groundbreaking event. Its emotional impact and lessons about the patient perspective were indescribable and powerful. So sit back, listen, learn, and when you're done, join the conversation on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Fundamentally, different parts of the meeting focused on what people were willing to risk to take drugs and conversely, what they weren't willing to risk around biopsy because of concerns about biopsy and the availability they hoped and believed of better options. If you had to pick one, which one do you think is more important to see progress made on quickly? I'm going to ask everyone that question. I'm starting with you because I know we're going to lose you in a few minutes. Stephen Harrison. Well, there's a lot that you could look at here. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's about patient preference. While I've done probably 10,000 liver biopsies in my career, when I look in the mirror and say, would I want to do a liver biopsy on myself or have somebody do a liver biopsy on me? The answer is no, particularly not by a first-year fellow. I don't know how we ever train those fellows to do the first couple. Those are some brave patients, no doubt. We all want to have something that is less invasive and more specific. I think we have very good sensitive non-invasive tests to exclude disease, but where we lack is the precision to appropriately stage patients with NASH. And we are rapidly moving in that direction. Some NITs are further along than others. I think MRE and CT1 from an MR perspective are really kind of showing us some opportunity to both diagnose and prognosticate patients. ELF is now approved for its you know prognosis. I think the next step is really what we're hoping to do at NASH tag, and that is bring everybody together Together, have a fireside chat and really, really talk about what's it going to take to get to an NIT as a diagnostic and as prognostic so that we don't have to have liver biopsy. It's not that it's just an invasive procedure. It's just not very good at telling us the extent of liver injury when you're only looking at one fifty thousandth of it. And oh, by the way, you're really only looking at one twelfth of the fifty thousandth because you're leaving the majority of the tissue block behind and you're looking at one H&E and one trichrome which, as you know, Roger, I'm a big advocate of looking at more of that block to make a decision about really what's happening in the liver. And then my final thought to Terry's comment earlier, and even Donna's, the surprise from the FDA. You know, I think the FDA is trying to do a great job. They're trying to do drug development in such a way that they minimize risk. But what we also need is to maximize benefit. And there is a happy median. You know, the enemy of good is great. Do we need great? No, we need something. So let's kind of find a way that we can get there. And this always comes back to a question I get asked, and having Terry and Donna and Louise here I think is terrific because one of the questions I always get asked is, what are patients willing to take, an injectable with AEs, or do they have to have an oral that's well tolerated with no adverse events? And that's a question I get asked. I'm not a patient. I can just kind of think about what my patients are likely to say. And my thought is always, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. If you 
you has to be worth the climb. If you've got bad disease, you're willing to take, you know, more, uh, the route of administration can be a bit more challenging and the side effect profile can be a little bit bigger because you're really trying to stop that freight train from going over the cliff. Alternatively, if you have mild disease and you're asymptomatic and you got time on your side, well, let's try to find a more palatable therapy that's well tolerated oral and that sort of thing. That's my perception. And of course, I leave that to, to Terry and Donna and the team to give their input in. But that's my thoughts. Okay. Louise? Louise Campbell. I absolutely agree with Steve. But also, Stephen said multiple times that an anecdote of a patient sitting in front of you will prompt you a lot to remember and to do things. And it's worth more literature. It's, it's worth more than anything. So I think he's right. It's what individuals will take. And again, I've not been a patient. When we talk about what we need now for medication, we also need to be discussing with people who may not have the disease yet. Where does the future take us? What do you want in the future? Because people diagnosed today were non-patients 10 or 15 years ago. Technologies move on. So what we decide today may not be where we are in five or 10 years time. So we do need to have a broader aspect of what we want to tolerate. If it was me, it would be things like going forward, a nasal spray, something that can be taken by most people in different mechanisms. How easy can we make it? What are we trying to achieve? How can it be absorbed? But Stephen's right. I've never come across a patient with severe disease who hasn't been willing to do more or less anything. But Donna and Terry will have way better insight. Donna Cryer. Well, I think it's also not just people with severe disease, people who have had the conversation with their physicians about what the path is, what the complications and consequences of diseases, what their future could look like if their disease isn't at least slowed down. So we find in conversations with those patients, there's a level of risk too. It's a benefit risk. It's a calculation. It's always in context. It's not just an vacuum. I'll give a real quick additional example to help bring this home to people from another disease state. I have, after this many years post-transplant, I have an even chronic disease. You know, I have a friend who, who does as well, and she was having trouble getting her EPO, which I had recently benefited from great access to medical care. I'd had my erythropoietin shot, I'd had my IV iron, and I was feeling great beating Peloton personal records. But we were trying to explain to our friends, even one who is a physician on our daily text thread, what patients have to go through to get access to this and how tight the target range is. And when I went to back to look at the actual label, it says the lowest dose sufficient to avoid a transfusion. I was like, is that supposed to be the goal? Because that's not my goal. That's not my friend's goal. It's the lowest dose necessary to leave a full and functional life is our target for getting this drug. And so there's that divergence again about what are the endpoints, the language, the goals from a research, from a physician, from a regulatory perspective, and what patients actually want of their therapeutics. And so we have to continue having strong advocacy organizations, strong patients like Terry who can articulate their stories so well and so strategically, patient-focused drug development meetings, ongoing conversations between patients, patient advocates, and and regulators to, to bring these closer in alignment. Because even for those of us with very low cardiovascular risk to be told that our goal is just to avoid having a transfusion, I know what it's like living when you need 
a transfusion versus living where I am right now today. That's a wide gulf. That's not my goal. This is my goal. And this is where we need everybody. So Stephen, I know you said you have to jump. If you got to jump, jump. Donna, I have to tell you, every time I deal with institutional medicine in situations like this, um, I'm struck by, this is me being controversial, the paternalism of their point of view. They believe if you really knew what you were asking for, you wouldn't ask for it because it's much more dangerous than you know. And I say, if you really knew what it was like to live one day as me, you wouldn't question why I'm asking for it. So let me share a story. My mom, in her mid-50s, developed rheumatoid arthritis, fairly severe rheumatoid arthritis, and had 15 brutal years. My, my dad had left. She was alone. And disease was erosive and progressive and nothing she could do about it. And then the anti-TNFs came along. And we had, she and I, a very long conversation about the anti-TNFs and the idea that they might provide relief, but that they would leave her susceptible to common infection that she probably couldn't stop. She looked at me and said, if I get one more good year, I don't care what happens at the end of it. And it turned out that she got five. And in the end, a stupid stinking strep pneumonia killed her. I've never questioned for a second that knowing the risk that she was walking into, she comfortably walked right into it. Okay, Terry, we didn't tell everybody that Terry was gone as compared to Stephen who we knew how to leave. But Terry was gone, is back. So welcome. We're happy to have you. Now, that's not the only example like that I can think of. But everything you're talking about is the same thing, which is an inability to be empathic from a position of supposed knowledge superiority. I'm not going to say intellectual superiority. I'm just saying knowledge. I know more. If you knew what I know, dot, 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 as compared to experiential um, sensitivity. But it's not unlike the argument that always gets posed, what about the false positives? If you diagnose somebody with a disease, which we've covered on here, is that ultimately that's a cop-out because that's the minority. And I'd rather investigate something that turns out to be nothing than not investigate nothing that turns out to be something. What would happen if there was a false positive of fatty liver disease that I would, you know, start exercising and eating better and watching my, and, you know, taking my, my statins and my diabetes medication for nothing? You know, I mean, what is the, that doesn't seem like a horror story to me. You've got to say, it's one of the best healthy options, isn't it? It would be traumatic. The psychological harm <laughs> just should not be allowed by any IRB. Nobody gets used time and time and time again to obstruct the cost of putting in these things. Because it's a real concern, the false positives and the false negatives. I've been more concerned about the false negative and the false positive, but <laughs> I don't know where that really, really comes from. Because as you say, in, in any form of the majority of liver diseases, it's, it's, it's improve your lifestyle, improve the fitness, improve the levels, and that will help whatever other disease you've got because it reduces the cofactor. Donna's right. If that's the worst advice you're ever going to be given by <laughs> a physician, let's give it. And it's not that anybody gets better with diet and exercise because they're fearful, right? People always do this for most up beaten optimistic reasons, he said facetiously. Roger, bring us home on this. Okay, I think I, I think home is a really simple question, which is, you guys took a huge step last week, and the realness of the conversations and the courage of the people who spoke. I don't cry very often. I was in tears twice. I, I don't cry very often at moments that, that really resonate personally, and this resonated personally enough that I was in tears twice with two people I'd never met before. One of whom has to be on a podcast today, Terry. What's the one thing each of us, most importantly, each of the two of you, hopes to see come out of this next? Because over time, I think we know the laundry list, but what's the one thing you want to see next? Terry Milton. In dealing with thousands of patients on a daily basis, on the, on the different people that I speak to, encourage, love on, kind of try to lead, sometimes kicking and screaming, me screaming, not them, but is to have something that slows down the progression, that stops the progression, actually, is and at this point in time, it's not even about a cure, is just to have something in hand that 
we can hand to somebody and say, okay, with lifestyle modification and this, that will stop the progression and maybe even reverse it, maybe go back to F1 or F2. I think that would be viable. I've written down a few comments and one of them was exactly what Donna said. We've got nothing at the moment, so we just need something to slow that progression down. I think we've had Oka sitting in the background here for now nearly 15 months since the FDA delayed all of that, even if that just slows it down. I agree. We need something to hold at the moment for lots of patients and the FDA need to bend a little bit and I think maybe we might get there. But yeah, we need something for right now so that we can hold on for something better in the future. Just so that we don't all sound boring and say the same thing without knowing what Don is going to say. Beyond the we need something is I want to go into two specific dimensions of why that is. One is hope that we know that people with hope strive harder to do the things they can do and last longer. So if hope gets people to take better care of themselves while using medications that aren't working that well but are better or have a hope for something to come up, from the patient point of view, hope in in itself is huge, number one. And number two, Terry was telling me on our pre-conversation, and not the only time I've ever heard this, but the only time I heard this this morning, about all the doctors who didn't know what they were dealing with. And one of the things that happens when you get a drug to market this may not be the way you'd want it to be in a pristine world, but where we live is real, is most of the education comes out of pharma and it comes out of the moments when there are drugs to treat. So when I think of everything that Intercept was using a year and a half ago, the educational things that they were going to use with physicians that you could see at meetings before that CRL letter came out, it's not a great drug, but it works sometimes and it offers hope and patients were willing to get through the side effects and the simple act of educating doctors so that people didn't have the problems that you guys had years ago and are going on today because nobody teaching anybody worth the price of admission. So, And actually, Donna, that's changed. If you'd asked me that question beginning of last week, I would have told you the diagnostics were more important than the drugs. But having listened to you guys Thursday and having been through what I went through last week and thought about it a little bit and talking to Terry today, I think getting a drug is actually, I agree with you, the most important thing we could do right now and the hope that goes along with it. It's not the answer that I think people are expecting. So certainly, I hope that this does advance the development of therapeutics of all categories. But I think that the big takeaway from last week is there is patient accountability of the regulatory space in liver health, that there is nothing that the agency can do or not do in liver health that isn't being scrutinized and that will go unanswered or unaddressed. So what will they do now? My expectation is that it will be more, more across the board for treatments and various methods of addressing all forms of liver disease across not only this division, but across the agency. And I think that this is the beginning of a new era for liver health, hopefully for liver research and investment in liver research, because that patient voice, that patient accountability, that patient scrutiny and proactive response and partnership, should the agency take advantage of that? And I think they will. Um, They've been very responsive as part of this process. will make a difference for everything to come later. Hoping that you'll have that because... A, that makes complete sense to me. B, that is the role of advocates is to drive that point of view. And C, if it goes the path you're talking about, you actually might win the, did we need 
the kind of fiery advocates that they had in ACT UP in order to make this go forward. You, you might not need outside bomb thrower if you can pull this off. Uh, across the history of advocacy, we needed that at that time. And there's often a place, even now, for what I call sort of Goldilocks method of, of advocacy. Somebody too hot, somebody too cold. And so they end up dealing with somebody just right. And GLI usually ends up being just right. And specifically, I guess I'm going back about 10 months to a conversation. Oh, I know. Yeah. I don't forget. No, I didn't. Well, no, I knew. I knew you didn't. This, is, <laughs> this, this was me saying, if you can pull this off, you were right. Knowing look for those who are listening only to the podcast. Well, there are a couple of others who I'm going to have to send this episode to and see if they agree with me on that. But uh, time will tell. Time will tell. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back. Monday morning and Tuesday morning with reviews of days three and four of this week's ASLD liver meeting. And then again next Thursday with a wrap-up episode. I hope you'll join us for all that and check the possibility of attending one of the daily review sessions live. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 